We're told to be rich, do things we don't want to do, dedicate a whole lifetime of stressing about things that we don't care about, accruing irreversible damage to our bodies, and calling that success. Can't we have a different kind of economy? Hello and welcome to Remember the Future, a podcast from art.coop where we invite you to remember the future by listening to the stories of artists and culture bears who are returning to practices as old as time to build community and care-centered workplaces where they are their own bosses, there are no landlords, and they decide how money flows. My name is Marina Lopez, and I'm your host. In today's episode, we have invited musician Clara Takarabe to share a cultural offering with you as a way to invite your full selves, body, mind, and spirit into this journey with us so that our learning can manifest as an embodied experience of what liberation can feel like. Clara is using all of her faculties as an artist, her technical skills, creativity, craft, and imagination, and then applying those to neuroscience research, a field that does not often partner with artists. And then she is taking the knowledge generated from that partnership and bringing it back into her community. Her work is so interesting. She creates music that signals to our brains and bodies that we are safe. Welcome, Clara. Will you start by sharing with us a little bit about yourself? So I live in Chicago, and um, I'm mainly a symphonic musician. I play viola, and I record also. My partner, Anton Real, and I have a band called Nereus. My main training for the instrument was through private lessons with various teachers who were very nurturing And to train to be a symphonic musician, I went to the Pacific Music Festival in Sapporo, Japan, which is a training institute started by Leonard Bernstein, and also the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. And then I learned on the job, and I played as a substitute viola in the Chicago Symphony for about 23 years. I'm curious, was there a moment or an experience that you had, some kind of memory you can pinpoint? in which you first recall questioning our current economic system? I remember the moment that I started thinking about our economic system. I was about seven years old, and the invasion of Grenada was taking place. And I had no framework of understanding the news except from my own family's political framework. I remember tinkering on something in the backyard with my dad and he was talking about Reagan and he said, we're going to war and that's good because that means the economy will improve. That moment I was standing under the persimmon tree and I was feeling incredibly sad and thinking to myself, this can't be. Our system is based on killing Shouldn't the economy be based on something else? Can't we have a different kind of economy? And that's something that really ate at me from that point. I wish I could thank my father for saying what he did to me. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. (laughs) Because his utterance opened a world of friendship 
solidarity and hope for me. His own nationalism and belief in capitalism opened a door to heterodox economics for me. Wow, what a powerful moment for you to remember. I just love this image of you as a young child standing underneath the persimmon tree with your dad and thinking to yourself, this just can't be. And before we move on, you used this term heterodox economics. And I'm wondering, could you tell us what that means? Wow, how do I describe it? That's so hard. For me, heterodox economics is not based in profit as the pure motive, as the sole motive, but that there are other drivers, the protection of human beings, the most vulnerable human beings, is one of the boundaries. That's one of the principles, and also of protecting the earth, because these two things are connected. And I think neoliberal capitalism really disregards that down to its core. It may have kind of green politics, but it doesn't really pass the test. So I think that, for me, heterodox economics is about connecting people to each other and also creating a new way of life that is also old. We, we had heterodox economics many times, many, many, many times in many eras, many peoples, and how it breaks down gender barriers, class barriers, race barriers, so that we're not boxed up as box people, living isolated and sick. I've never heard heterodox economics defined so poetically. Thank you. And I love that you recognize that these practices of relating to people and to the planet have existed before, right? In many shapes and in many forms. They are essentially cultural practices that can be passed down through generations. Though we know that that knowledge has been intentionally disrupted, at least for many of us. And so it makes me think of the memory you shared about your father's perspectives and how they really informed your inquiry into other ways of being and knowing. I'm curious, how would you describe the connection between that experience and your father's perspectives of the world and the work that you create now? My father's utterances about war and economy really freed me to explore life, and I'm very thankful for that. In my mid-20s, I wanted to understand how people survived in war, so I lived in Ramallah for a year as string department head of the National Conservatory of Palestine. I went there because I believed in civil society, and I believed that children had a right to education, and I wanted to understand and see conflict with my own eyes. I learned an incredible amount there, and that experience still drives me today. I personally experienced artistic and musical need it was in the situation of war that I saw this artistic need really reflected back to me in the children's eyes. And this need had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the situation of leisure-based art consumption that we experience most commonly in the U.S. and in Europe. This understanding is what drives me to be a neuroscience researcher in music medicine. I really appreciate this connection you make between 
what you say the accruing and irreversible damage that our bodies endure while living within this capitalist system. And this reality, as you name it, of leisure-based arts consumption. Um, I see these ideas really in deep conversation with one another in not only the music that you create, but I think even more so in how you're sharing that music and the spaces that you're bringing it into, right? Not only these medical and research spaces, but also schools and community spaces and places like this podcast where we're talking about the interdependent um, relationship between art, the economy, and the bodies and the humans who create and move within those economies. And so how did you find yourself as an artist creating at this intersection of music and neuroscience research? And how did that shape what we'll hear today? So when the pandemic began, I asked myself, what can I do to help through music in this moment in time? And this question led me to research and design a pilot program for Northwestern Medicine to support patients in the neuro ICU, neurosurgery, and also the epilepsy monitoring unit to support them through the isolation, stress, and anxiety they experienced due to the pandemic restrictions. In preparing this pilot, I asked myself some questions. What is safety? What does that feel like? Do we in our profoundly dangerous society really know what that feels like? How do we know when we're safe or when we feel safe? Then this led me to the question of how does our body and our nervous system recognize safety? And as a result of these questions about safety in our society, the Northwestern Music and Medicine Program was founded, and our research team developed a form of clinical music called Clinically Designed Improvisatory Music, or CDIM. That is so amazing. So I know you're going to play for us in just a few minutes, but before you do, I'm wondering... Could you describe what CDM sounds like? Um, like what makes it distinct from other types of music? Are there certain characteristics that the music has? CDM is based on what the nervous system signals as safety, and it's slow, almost tempo-less. It's really slow and meandering. There are no complicated rhythms, no syncopations. The pitches I will be playing will be pitches in a very narrow range, the range that the brainstem signals as safe, because really high pitches and low pitches signify danger. So as we prepare for you to play some clinically designed improvisatory music, are there any invitations you'd like to make to listeners? ways the music could make them feel, or where it might take them? Some people fall asleep. Um, other people, they feel relaxed, or they feel like the anxiety is draining away. Other people, they start having waking dreams, um, partially because of the 
the proximity of the auditory and the visual cortex. We kind of see with our ears and hear with our eyes. So they start seeing oceans. They feel themselves flying. Some people see force and experience kind of a timelessness. Some people start feeling the aches and pains in their bodies. They're like, oh, I didn't know that my stomach and my back hurt. So they become aware. And this makes a lot of sense because music is processed through the insula, which allows us to feel our bodies. But it also, you know, this processing also allows us to feel empathy, to imagine things, because empathy is imagination. Although some people do have an increase in anxiety. So there are um, individuals who experience some adverse effects. And so I, I think that sedum is not necessarily for every person at every moment, but there could be a time and place for it. Thank you for sharing the range of experiences that people can have when listening to sedum. So before you begin playing, how would you like to invite listeners to prepare for the experience? Do you have any guidance? So I would like for you to make yourself as comfortable as possible, whether it's laying down or sitting up, but um, anything that makes you feel as relaxed as possible. I will play about 10 minutes of sedum for you, and there will be a series of pauses, probably four or five pauses, um, but the music will go on until around the 10 minute mark.
That was Clara Takarabe playing her clinically designed improvisatory music. Thank you so much, Clara, for giving us a moment of restoration. I invite each of you to reflect on how that landed in your body. If you'd like to share your experiences with us, please feel free to tag or message us on Instagram or Twitter at underscore art C-O-O-P. Thank you so much for joining us for Remember the Future. Special thanks to Yerba Buena Center for the Arts for their generous support of this podcast. And thanks to Creative Study for their ongoing partnership. Remember the Future is co-produced by Meerkat Media Cooperative, Alita Cooper, and Art.coop. It's edited by Justin Maxson and Alita Cooper, with visual design by Emma Warawinski, and theme music by Andile Blessing Magwasa and Siswe Lancelot Mabelu. The show's executive producers are Eric Phillips-Horst and me, Marina Lopez. Additional thanks to our consulting editor, Caroline Woolard, and to my colleagues at Art.coop, Nati Linares and Shruti Suryanarayanan. You can hear more episodes of Remember the Future anywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, we invite you to rate, subscribe, and review. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore art C-O-O-P. You can also help sustain this podcast by visiting our website, art.coop, and clicking on support to make a donation. I'm your host, Marina Lopez, and this has been Remember the Future. Remember the Future.